Hey, this is Kate. Welcome to Two Pastors Take a Walk and Make a Podcast. This is Yolando, and as always, we're talking about what is astonishing us, what we're thinking about, and what we're preaching. Yes, and once again, we have not walked or run. It's hot. It is, and yeah. So what's astonishing you? Well, two things. Uh, one um, more important than the other, one more serious than the other. Uh, the first... <laughs> Last Thursday, I was on my way in from uh, my house to uh, Dorada Church and stopped at my local Starbucks. There's a new location in my part of the city. And um, there are three ways to enter into the drive-thru. And so I was pulling in. And you have to pause and kind of turn your blinker on before you get into the actual drive-thru. And so I was there waiting. And suddenly, this huge... SUV comes speeding out of what seemed like nowhere and cut in front of me. And uh, I'm <laughs> I'm not normally the kind of person, the kind of personality that is easily angered, but I was really irritated and had some very unkind thoughts about the driver of this, um, I think it was a Tahoe. I mean, it's a huge car. And um, as the driver was... Um, Moving further into the drive-thru line, um, we locked eyes. She looked into her side mirror, and I was looking forward at her car. And so she saw me, I saw her, and I was like, yeah, you know what you did, right? And so I was just in my car stewing with anger. And um, I get to the window to pay for my coffee, and the barista said, um, the woman in front of you has paid for your coffee. And so, not, I mean, instantly I felt two things. Number one, just like a big fat jerk for being so angry and, you know, was asking for God's forgiveness for my unkind thoughts. But also thought about the power of just a simple gesture, mm-hmm. something that said, I'm sorry, I see you, I mm-hmm. recognize I caused you some harm. And uh, it it made my day. And that was just a simple thing, paying for my coffee. Mm-hmm. And so that leads me into a much more uh, important story than me being irritated in the Starbucks line. And that is the, the Pope has made good on his promise to travel to Canada so that he might face-to-face personally apologize for the atrocities of of of. of schools created to take indigenous children away from their families uh, to make them civilized and Catholic. And uh, these schools, these boarding schools, ran from the 1800s all the way to the 1970s. And um, school officials and police would just show up in these indigenous communities and take children as young as three, uh, and they would not the first thing they would do is cut their traditional hair. They would not be allowed to speak their language. They did. They were punished. Uh, what has come out also is that there was just a horrific amount of abuse. Everything that you can think of from emotional and mental to physical and sexual abuse. Uh, children were um, were given a number. They were not called by their name. Like one guy um, I heard interviewed said he was called 65. And, you know, uh, a priest would say to him, 65, why are you so stupid? Drop your book. 65, do this. 65, do that. And just the, the, the trauma and the pain of that. Uh, I think a couple of years ago, someone found in the area of one of these schools a mass grave of about mm-hmm. 200 kids. Several. Yeah. yeah. Um, and just, I mean, even as the Pope is making this tour uh, and apologizing they have mental health experts uh, with the people because it is such uh, trauma that people are um, reliving and yet at the same time these people who have endured so much pain so much injustice so much violence against them as children some of them you know, they said, you know, for many years, I just turned to alcohol, anything to numb mm-hmm. the pain. And, and these people are 
receiving the Pope's apology with open arms. Uh, and it, it really is a beautiful thing to see, especially at a time when, again, in this country, we, we don't want to talk about slavery. We want, don't want to talk about 1916. We don't, or, or um, 1619. We... And there were indigenous schools here And as indigenous well. schools here. As a matter of fact, um, I saw one documentary that said that the Canadian government got their idea for these schools from the U.S. There was a yeah. school in Pennsylvania that published a picture of Native American children when they first arrived, when they first arrived at the school in their Native dress, and then like a month later, dressed like Western uh, people. I mean, I can remember learning about them in 10th grade social studies class, and I mean, the slogan was, kill the Indian, save the child. And I, it was not... I remember um, thinking, oh, how how wonderful that we did that. Like, it, it was taught to me as, wow. look at how tolerant, look at how loving that, you know, the in the United States, we see the value of every, we see that everyone can be so, I mean, I just, that was the way it was taught to me. And I did not question it. Um, so I um, just the magnitude of how how difficult it is to learn to see something that you were taught not to see. Um, yeah, it's astonishing. And I think just how terribly beautiful graces how costly graces because i know maybe not for christians and i don't know that anyone who doesn't identify with christ would ever listen to this podcast but i can't imagine so many people um and understand them saying who cares if i mean the pope giving an apology to these children and their descendants has nothing to do with the woman who cut you off in the Starbucks line, you can make a gesture and compensate for something that is, you know, an offense, but this was a crime against humanity. And, um, and I think I just hear that. Um, and I think sometimes cheap grace is something that actually, blasphemously reinforces the systems that it should be tearing down. I think that because we are steeped in violence and vengeance, what feels fair to us is revenge, right? Um, suffering, like you caused, you caused suffering, so you must suffer, and only then can we start over. And I think to behold people receiving with grace and gratitude the words of Pope Francis is just offensively holy. Um, that, I mean, because I was hearing interviews of people saying, you know, that it is transformative. Those words are transformative. And that's just, I, I can't, um, I see it. I believe it. It's my hope, but I can't understand it. I mean, I just, I, I suppose I don't ever want to talk about it in a way as if, well, he said, sorry, so let's turn the page. But also what it looks like to move forward out of such deep pain and suffering and betrayal of the gospel, I think is just really hard to, to fathom. And I think that's why so many people can't um can't abide sitting with the truth of the depth of the suffering that exists in our past and in our present because we just think well if the truth if we acknowledge the truth that it will destroy us um and there'll be no way forward and the only way forward is to to dismiss or to lie and i think for followers of Jesus Christ, um, maybe not for other folks, but for followers of Jesus Christ, we have 
a framework, we have a story that says, no, there, there is a way forward that does not deny the magnitude of destructive power of sin and violence, um, but that the cross absorbs and transforms and proclaims that self-giving love is the way forward. And receiving that self-giving love, knowing that you don't deserve it, um, and being changed by that, but that, you know, it, it's just hard to, it's important to talk about it, but it's important that it be hard to talk about, I think. Well, one of the things that, um, that I really love about this whole, um, apology tour of the Pope is that it acknowledges the depth of the injustice done. Yeah. And when you are the victim of injustice, it seems to me, and I could be wrong about this, but it seems to me that one of the first steps toward healing is to have the injustice acknowledged, to yeah. say this was wrong. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think it's astonishing, um, the quotes that I've read, which I'm assuming were correct translations, is that he said, I'm begging for yes. your forgiveness. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And I think that is shocking language and it's important language. Um, and I think it's really interesting because of, you know, Catholic theology, it, he as a Pope has to both say this was wrong, but it, it happened within the purview of an institution that claims it's impossible to be wrong. And so, you know, he's begging for forgiveness for the harm that was done. Um, and he obviously, I mean, it's just a curious line about the way that doc doctrine, because I've been listening because just to hear, is he going to say, obviously popes before him knew and approved. So if you, if your core doctrine is the Pope is infallible. Well, <laughs> there was this collusion between the Canadian government because the first Canadian prime minister supported these schools mm -hmm. and um, the Catholic Church and like regular people on the ground. Like yep. all of these, all, all three of these forces, all three of these groups um, were together in this injustice. And it's, I, I believe the Canadian justice established a truth and justice commission, mm -hmm. right? So that it could begin to tell the story. And well, again, that's just a mm -hmm. powerful thing. Right. I mean, and the reason that people on the ground could go along with it is because the lie of white supremacy was so deeply entrenched. We are civilizing that you could people. really believe that if someone came to my house and stole my three-year-old for me for any purpose, it would be unthinkable, but I can support people going into other people's houses and stealing their three-year-olds away because I believe that they are a savage. Mm -hmm. And I believe that for me to do it is salvific. Whereas the reason that I'm doing it is because I fear that they might come and do it to me. So just like that fear of retaliation is just so deeply entrenched in us. I mean, we really believe in violence, which is why we practice it. Yeah. And this also helps me understands, uh, understand Paul's uh, diligence in the New Testament when it came to heresy in the church, mm -hmm. because it's really hard for us on, on the other side of this injustice to look back and see, you know, how the church could be so involved in this evil. Well, what, what Paul is often doing in the New Testament is saying, look, any, any teaching plus Christ is going to take you down a correct. different road. Correct, correct. And it will... It, so you need to be Jesus have... and civilized as we right. understand civilized. Jesus plus European culture is what you need. And that's what opened the door to that kind of... To a very distorted thinking and therefore unjust and Well, and demonic. Yes. I mean, it's demonic yes. mm -hmm. um, to get people in the name of Christ to do works of deep... Um, evil i mean acts of evil to steal someone's child from them is evil unquestionably and 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 even a child can know that which is one reason that you know everything that we do has to pass the child test right i really think not that we need to that a child could understand all all of the magnitude of the glory of god and i mean we cannot either but if we are doing something that on the face of it a child would say that has to be evil. We, we we need to not just be able to say 
um, well, if you understood X, Y, and Z. I mean, the way of love does not steal people's children. Um, yeah, at the end of the day, my, my takeaway is the power of an apology, mm-hmm. whether it's in the Starbucks line or from the Pope or from a government, to say, I'm sorry. Uh, he, here, uh, I'm acknowledging a wrong done to you. But that's a powerful thing at any level. Well, and I think the reality is, I mean, there's so much that the power dynamic has been the Catholic Church representing all of the systems of this world, having power over indigenous people. And so for Francis, who is, I mean, who just is not I'm not going to go into how I feel about it, but Francis is at the top of a hierarchy of this body that is the Catholic Church. And so for him to go and beg for forgiveness subverts that power dynamic. Now he is in a position of asking those who were powerless um, and putting himself in their power. They can say yes or no. And I think that is um, restorative. So, um, yeah, I think, yeah, it's really, it's astonishing to watch that. And he's going other, other places. And I do think, um, when I was in seminary, I studied, um, for three semesters with Elie Wiesel and he, one of the things he talked about was the power of a gesture, like the sacred power of a gesture. And I think that's, it doesn't restore, it doesn't restore physical harm for he for him to go and say that he's sorry. But in the same way that the lies of white supremacy eventually gave gave birth to those systems of destruction and oppression, his um, gesture of ad- acknowledging harm and begging for forgiveness that is a spiritual gesture that creates systems as well, and that's really important. and shines a light on how the current situation is connected to what happened Mm -hmm. then. Mm -hmm. Like what if the French government went to Haiti Mm -hmm. and said, we're sorry, because uh, Haiti and the Dominican Republic, same Mm -hmm. island, but vastly different in terms of economy and just the land. The French just destroyed the land because they were trying to get everything they could out of they're part of the island. The Spanish, not so much. For them, it was, they, they had slavery, but they used that part of the island basically as a base to go to Central America and South America because they were looking for gold. But the French wanted to get everything they could out of what became Haiti and so just left them with nothing. And what if the French said, you know what, we, we, we've done a terrible injustice what? here. And the reality is, I mean, so the French didn't leave, like well, they, yeah, they had to be revolted, yes, right? Yes. But then the the you know the Haitians, and I think might even still be paying the Haitians are paying reparations to France for the value of the enslaved persons that the Haitians owe France. So, I mean, we talk about like how the global dynamics are the way they are, and what's the difference between a quote, developing country in a developed country. I mean, France, and certainly this is true of America, like I'm not claiming that it isn't. Although, I mean, part of a difference, and people can argue about what a, whether that difference has a distinction, is, you know, France physically left Haiti and then required of the Haitian government that they pay reparations to France to compensate France for the loss of income from enslaving Haitians. The United States built its wealth off of enslaved people, but their descendants still live in this country. And so there is a sense where we are building a shared destiny together, whereas there's still this. But the initial injustice creates a context in which to continue um, uh, oppression and discrimination. Mm -hmm. So you, you destroy the lives of these indigenous children and they... Uh, to to deal with the pain, they turn to alcohol, and, and then, then you, you can point say, to them and say, say well, "See, see this, yeah, it's the, the these yeah. Haitians. Their 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 lives are destroyed by violence and oppression, and the the, the land is is mm-hmm. destroyed. It's 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 used up, 
and then bad things happen. You know, there's an earthquake, there are landslides. Uh, and you say, well, see, these people, they can't really build a nation. Well, I mean, like, you know, there's a huge saying lie going on in white evangelical congregations of this country. That, like Pat Robinson, Robertson, Robertson, I forget his name, whatever his name is, 700 Club guy. I know what you're going to say. Um, yeah, that the Haitian government sold its yeah. land to the devil, mm -hmm. and that's why they're suffering. And I, the, you know, I mean, the devil colonized Haiti in terms of white supremacy, and Haitians fought back, and they're they're still reaping the fury of um, that principality being overthrown. But I mean, it's just so interesting that literally we see the first nation successfully achieve liberation and the way the story we tell is in liberating themselves they sold themselves to the devil and when they were colonized by civilized france that's when they were yoked to christ i mean that's just how deep the lie goes and how powerful the symbols of our faith have been hijacked to support the systems that Jesus came to overthrow, which I mean, the closer we stay to the text, and I mean, the text as in the plain sense of the words, then we know the spirit of Jesus as opposed to spirits of Antichrist. So, yeah. Well, last thing I want to say about this is once again, just to highlight the um, beautiful, transformative nature of this apology. And I, right. I think it is. It's not for nothing, right? It 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 is the work of Christ. It is mustard seed. It is kingdom That's work. It it's, is. It's the it, thing that shouldn't make a difference, yes, but does. Yes, it's easily dismissed as okay, just words. But no, this is kingdom breakthrough. It's yeast. Yes. It's it's the yeast of yeah. holiness that is entering into a system and corrupting it with redemption. Mm -hmm. Right? I do. Yeah. I mean, we believe that because. It's the it's the alternative. The only way that the world knows to repair violence is with violence, mm -hmm. and um, the the kingdom of God offers a different way, a narrow way, a way that looks like weakness and foolishness, but looks like submitting to evil when actually it's subverting it, and that's just what it is. And I think it's fair to sort of if you if you've not experienced it in your own life to look at that and say how can that be and that's fine like I think that's a holy question how can that be um, but just to pay attention um, to to what comes from that and, yeah. and in our in your in our own lives of times when we have authentically made moves of repentance and reconciliation and what's grown out of that which has not been of our power so, yeah. so what is astonishing you? Um, I think just I, I, I've been realizing lately how much of a struggle it has been for me to rest, which I feel like is a I recognize a pattern in my life um, that just this end of the summer season is always just um, really deeply tiring for me um just because of the rhythm of our life together here and I just realized the the more tired I get the more resistant I am to resting because I think oh well I'm so behind and I'm so overwhelmed that I don't have time to rest and I just need to do a little bit of work and if I just do just do these few things then uh, I won't be so tired because I won't be so behind and just what a what a lie it is. And I I don't know. I'm just astonished at how deeply I not theologically, but in my heart somehow believe that the coming of the kingdom of God depends on me, which is the only reason that you can't take a day off, um, that you can't accept that, you know what? That rest is not a reward, which I think is just, um, I mean, certainly that's the, the culture's message, but it, it is um, been so deeply interwoven into the life of Christian communities as well. So there are some seasons when I can rest because I feel like, oh, I, 
I've been doing a good job lately. <laughs> um, and so I, I feel like I've earned it and I deserve it, which in this, that case is not rest. Um, and it's not, it's not Sabbath. And the, the power of Sabbath is that you get it when you've earned it and deserved it. And, and when you haven't, and I just, am just sort of astonishing at how deeply resistant I am to it and kind of trying to figure out what that what that means, um, and how I, I catch myself just being really resentful of other people who are resting, which is super ugly and not life giving. Um, and just what a, what a mess it is. So I don't know. I like to talk about in this section of the podcast, things like you are. And I feel like I kept yanking you back to the brokenness of the world, but like you're astonishing at the power of the glory of God in a in the way of Christ, which is a way of forgiveness and seeking forgiveness. Um, and I, I want to lift up what is astonishing and good. Um, but also sometimes what's astonishing to me is just the level of resistance that is in my own spirit that I just can't, I can't stop. And, and the less, you know, then it's just the deeper in the hole you get and just not being able to tell the truth about, whether or not I should rest or like, it doesn't matter. Like you, you, if you don't rest, that doesn't make you less tired. And, and I think just intuitively, I just feel like, Oh, I can't rest. Cause that'll make me even more tired. I don't know. So I just, um, and part of it is just the rhythm of life in, um, the season of ministry always. But, um, but part of it is just, I know it's me. Like I know that there are, Everything that we need to be faithful in this season is already here in this community. And I'm the one who's not being honest about where there are gaps and where I need help and how I want other people to see me. And how, anyway, so I just, um, I'm really astonished about that in myself. It makes me realize I really, I think in the past we've done a, um, some teaching about Sabbath and some talking about Sabbath. And it makes me realize we because me need to have sort of a real yearly um, extended teaching about Sabbath because it's so um, it's so countercultural. It's it's so unintuitive in the world that we live in. Um, so I'm just astonished. I'm so tired and, and I think can't rest. <laughs> everything you've said, I think, is especially true in this season of the church, especially small church, when there are many things to do and sometimes, most of the time, not a lot of hands to do them. And so as pastors, um, as a matter of fact, I said to my wife last night, I said, um, it's just my responsibility. And she said, why are you doing X, Y, Z? Well, it's my responsibility. She's like, well, is it? Is it? Yeah, I mean, and I think it's just so interesting. Like Sabbath is a gift. And so somehow we think that when we don't receive it, that's generous. Or like somehow, like you know that it is not. Well, it's this idea. It's this It's this desire to prove something. Yeah. Whether it's mm -hmm. our worth, our humanity. It's like, see me, see what I'm doing. I, I am worthy of the the trust and the love of of these people um right because it really is the people right mm -hmm. like I, it is really is this part of you that really wants people to see you as i mean so gross it as could, like it, a proxy well, that could go savior in many, oh. that could go in many twisted ways it could be i want you to see me as um atop a throne or i could i want you to see me with the kind of value and worth in which I see you. Like, right, right, right. Or like, just, yeah, like I want to work hard enough so that there's no question in your eyes yeah. that I am enough. Mm -hmm. Instead of just saying, being able to accept that like maybe there will be people in the community who think you don't work hard enough. And can and, that be okay? And you like, can survive do you, that. Do you mm -hmm. need, I mean, I just think it's so interesting somehow we think that like there are ways of being unfaithful to God that we all understand are destructive so like it is unfaithful to god to steal or to gossip or to lie um or to be like a you know commit adultery or you know some sort of sexual objectification of a person but then there are ways of being unfaithful to god that we somehow think are like 
okay. So like to say, I, I mean, and I think like as you play around with Sabbath or drive deeper in to say what you stop doing on Sabbath is is even things that are good. So to say like, well, on the Sabbath, I'm not going to rest, but I'm going to do ministry. And somehow it's okay that I'm not resting because I'm doing ministry on the Sabbath. And to say like, no, it's not okay. Um, you have, you, you are made to rest. You cannot experience the abundant life that God has called you to unless you will submit to receiving gifts that you haven't earned and until you will learn to trust God to provide instead of yourself. And when you resist Sabbath, you, you resist these truths that will actually set you free and keep you from oppressing other people. Um, like learning that God can be God all by herself is what? something that we have to learn or else we start thinking that like we that need we're to... Holy Spirit Jr. and we've got to do it. Right. I mean, and like that for nothing. But I mean, I think that's part of the thing that gives birth to the lie of like, yes, Jesus is Lord, but we need to civilize these quote savages or else blah, blah, blah. Right. Because we we need to take matters into our own hands because God is not sufficient to provide flourishing or whatever. So I just um, am just astonished at and I mean I know it's bad when my spouse is like what are, why are you not I mean it's just hard it's like it's really hard and and it's hard when whatever I mean blah blah I I think the other thing that is interesting is just I, I am living the life that I've always wanted to live in it is my deepest place of gratitude that I am mothering and pastoring and my kids are in the home still and it's just a really beautiful season but it is really hard because when you are not working, you are parenting, and it's not as though you can just say, well, child, we're not going to celebrate your 16th birthday because I need a day off, right? But so it's just hard that, that especially I think, um, especially I think for women, this sense of being able to be honest about like, I can't be, I, I can't, I'm, I am not limitless and I can't pastor the way I would pastor if I didn't have children. And I can't mother the way I would mother if I weren't a pastor. And I, I want to be both of those things, but they have costs and real limits and how to be honest about that um, in the context of family and community. And to say that unpaid work is still work and you have to be able to rest from it. And that is just really difficult to do. Um, the culture does not think it's okay. And honestly, I just think the church doesn't think it's okay either. And so it's really hard to um, just figure out how to teach and lead from a place I'm not living. And then I'm scared to live in. Uh, recently, our colleague, um, Katie uh, Sloan, um, I have a lot of Kates and Katies in my life. Um, lucky you. Yeah, I know, lucky me. <laughs> uh, our, our colleague, uh, Katie contacted me because she applied for um, a Sabbath grant from our denomination. And in order for her to get this grant, she had to um, ask another colleague to be her, quote, Sabbath advocate. And so she asked me to be that person for her. And just hearing about this makes me so tired and resentful. Like well, and it, I this just, actually gets uh, good. It's it, it's 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 one of the things that you know one, one of these hoops that we had to jump through, um, and and so in order for me to be her Sabbath advocate, I had to meet with Katie and someone from our denomination, and also another pastor applying for the Sabbath grant and their advocate. So there's five people on the Zoom call, um, and the person from the denomination asked a question about Sabbath practices and then read a piece about the meaning of Sabbath. And here is the thing that really got my attention. That so often when we think about Sabbath, it's about rest. It's about not working. What we leave out of our Sabbath thinking is joy, delight, play, that has really no meaning or purpose, but just to bring us joy. And um, I've been sitting with that. And one of the things um, 
my child and I do on Sunday afternoons is, first of all, uh, there, there are no diets or food limits on Sunday, so we eat whatever, uh, which usually means lots of ice cream. And our other practice is we, we just we, we play video games. That's what we like. Um, but I have never seen that as a Sabbath practice. Yeah, we our friends, the riches, the rich family, their kids from the beginning. It's it's soda Sunday. That Sunday is the day they can have soda, and like they wanted that was their way of helping their kids to equate Sabbath with delight, right? That, yeah. So what what comes to my mind is that in in my own heart and mind, I'm making the shift, not away from, but to add, not simply stop working, but to receive something, to receive mm -hmm. um, life-giving joy. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, I just think the, the first step to healing is acknowledging that you have a problem. And so I think we, um, I have a problem. I think I'm um, not unique or alone in that problem. Absolutely I mean, not. it makes me laugh without knowing anything about the program. And so just being completely ignorant, like it just makes me laugh the amount of work that is involved. And maybe that's wise. Maybe they know that if they don't build in safeguards and systems and bureaucracy that people won't Sabbath. But I mean, just like, I just think like many things, there are grant programs out there that you can apply for Sabbath, but like the amount of work you have to do to get a Sabbath is just so tiring that you just think like, oh, I just need to keep going. <laughs> I just can't. Anyway. Well, as pastors thing. in this denomination, we are supposed to receive, we're supposed to um, experience a sabbatical what, every seven years. Mm -hmm. And it's quite a bit of work to right. prepare for that sabbatical. Mm -hmm. Um, I have been doing this work for 20 plus years and I've never gone on a sabbatical partly because there is there's a financial hardship for the right. church um, right yeah no I've never done a sabbatical I mean this is just I mean you and I both I mean occupy different amounts but a lot of privilege and so that is just clear and it needs to be said and acknowledged and also I mean, our our denomination has a very two-tiered reality of pastoring. And there's just, um, you know, there's a, a, for lack of a better word, a class of pastors in the denomination who enjoy um, certain benefits and and another class that does not. And that is not something that there's very much interest in um, changing. In the denomination, and I don't. I mean, but it doesn't change the reality that you started with. That there is a tendency for most, if not all, of us to keep going. Correct. When we should. Correct. When we should rest. When we should stop and, and rest and tr because it yeah. is it is the spiritual work of trusting God, mm -hmm. right? So I'm going to plow the ground and sow the seed. And trust God to water, to bring the rain, and to mm -hmm. grow the seed. I'm, yep. I'm, I'm, I'm going to do my part, but I'm not going to go beyond that. I'm not going to then try to do God's part. Because when when we don't build with God, which Sabbath forces you to build with God, then we build instead of God. And mm -hmm. that's when you end up with really destructive systems, which are all done in the name of good. Like people don't do evil in the name of doing evil. People always do evil in the name of doing good. So, you know, people really believed that they were rescuing indigenous children. Um, you know, we bombed the village to save the village. Like this is just, that is just what it means that the enemy is the king of lies, that we are convinced um, that we are doing evil things for great good. And so like, you know, goodness when we feel responsible for goodness, that becomes a burden and a yoke as well. And Sabbath frees us from all of that in the same way that a gesture would would create reconciliation. We think like, how can resting help? How could that possibly make any difference at all? I'm not going to do it because I know it won't, quote, work. And this is just the kind of yeast and mustard seed that we ignore. So anyway, um, that is what I'm astonished about. What are you thinking about? I think we're thinking about the same thing, right? Probably not. Okay, so okay. I'm thinking about Amber Rose, 
Is that what you're thinking about? No, (laughs) I didn't think so. Well, um, Amber Rose, let's see, actress, model. uh, She is well known for um, having dated Kanye West before he got married to Kim Kardashian. Um, So what, a week or two ago, she was being interviewed by, I can't think of the name of the podcast, but the interviewer asked her about her faith. And uh, she said that uh, she does not believe in God. She does not believe in Jesus. She went on to say some other things. Um, uh, She said that uh, Buddhism is uh, a good fit for her uh, because it's more a philosophy rather than a religion. And all you got to do is be a good person and they accept you even with your mistakes. And she has received quite a bit of criticism, judgment, condemnation from the Christian world. And because we can condemn people to Christ, can't we? Yes. Like just like criticizing well, people really. It's like the schools <laughs> for these indigenous kids. Let's make them, right? Right. Um and um so I've just been sitting with this and I, I talked about this on Sunday. Um, my heart really goes out to her. One this is a person who grew up in church. She's not a right. stranger right. to the teachings of Christianity. My heart goes out to her because I've, I've been in her shoes. I've been in a place where I didn't think I believed in Jesus. And I, I remember questioning, I mean, not just questioning, but concluding, I, I, don't, I don't think God exists. Um, and this is... When I was a student, a student in the religious studies program as an mm-hmm. undergrad, right? Um, so I've been in her shoes, and I'm also aware that sometimes we Christians are just not very good representatives of the Christ we proclaim. And so I started to wonder if the Jesus she's rejecting Jesus. is the Jesus of the Bible. Mm-hmm. And so I, I said to the church on Sunday. In my mind, I've just been having this imaginary conversation with Amber, um, like we would be in a Starbucks or at a restaurant, just having a conversation not to criticize or judge, but to listen and to share why I have surrendered to Jesus. Um, And I... <laughs> Not that she would ever call me or send me a text or anything, but there, there's. I just have this deep desire to to be her friend, like honestly, sincerely, just walk with her because I I sense um, woundedness, I sense pain, I sense there 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 just a, there a lot of stories there and. Yeah, I mean, I think it's so interesting that we respond with such defensiveness and anger to someone else's choice um, not to follow Jesus. And I mean, I just think it's so revelatory about us that, I mean, if someone comes up in the church and experiences it as not a place of love and not a place of radical acceptance and not a source of goodness in the world and so walks away and then we get mad at them instead of saying like well we're still radically free to be followers of Jesus who who we believe is um has saved the world and is and the kingdom of God is in the midst and so if somebody doesn't believe that we are good or loving you know it's just like you know, if your if your spouse says your behavior hurts me, and you say back to your spouse, "Well, it shouldn't." What's the matter with you? Right? That's just not love. It doesn't matter. Like we we look at someone like Amber Rose and say, "You shouldn't feel that way about the church." Well, the reality is, she does. So the question is, do we care or not? We don't get to control how someone else experiences Jesus. But the way that other people experience Jesus does have a lot to do with us. And I think that's just a truth that we need to accept and live in. And whether or not someone else accepts or rejects Jesus does not 
limit our ability to walk out the way of humility and peace and self-giving love. And the ability to do that in response is, is really revelatory. And the refusal to do that in response is also really revelatory. Like the practice of Christian faith is not transactional. So we don't love people because they believe in Jesus. We love people because Jesus loves people. And we look at how, you know, we, we do our best to discern from the Holy Spirit what it will look like to be faithful to people regardless of whether they're faithful to God or to us. I mean, that is the posture of Jesus on the cross. So, yeah. yeah. Uh, <sighs> some folks are really angry because she said, and I think this is a direct quote, she said something like, Jesus dying on the cross for my sins is ludicrous. It just doesn't make sense. Mm -hmm. And uh, some folks in the church are really angry and offended by that. And my thinking is, have we been in the church so long that the death of Christ, the Son of God on the cross, no longer astonishes us or offends no, us yes we don't understand why it's a stumbling block to people yes. like that's i mean again i just think that the response of the church to her says everything about the church and very little about her and mm -hmm. i um yeah i think it, that it is a really oh poor church i just poor poor church yeah yeah so what are you thinking about well i mean on a relate related to all of this um I am thinking about um, this Sunday, there was a pastor in Brooklyn yes. who was um, in a service and the service was being live streamed and three armed gunmen came into the sanctuary and robbed him and his wife of over $1 million in jewelry during worship. Um, and so I... I mean, this is just... Kate, leave your million-dollar jewelry at home I this Sunday. I, just, I mean, I am so... Um, I'm just thinking about all the different facets of that occurrence. I'm grateful. I'm so grateful that no one was injured. Um, the pastor has spoken quite forcefully back against any people who suggested that it was unfitting for him to be wearing a million dollars worth of jewelry and said that he's free to purchase whatever he wants to purchase. Um, and certainly uh, by the laws of the United States, that is true. Um, but I do think, you know, it is, I mean, when you think about why someone would reject Jesus, I mean, <laughs> the idea that a, a bishop of Jesus of Nazareth, who was homeless and died owning nothing but a cloak, would, would follow Jesus with a million dollars of jewelry. Like, I just think that the church in America, in North America, really needs to reckon with the reality of how repeatedly and pointedly Jesus warned against the corrupting danger of wealth. And, you know, it's easy for me to look at that um, situation and sort of be titillated by it. And the reality is um, <laughs> I have more than I need. I, I definitely walk around as if I own my money and have the right to spend it on what I want to spend it on. And, you know, it's a difference of magnitude, but not, but not of actual understanding. And you can see it so clearly in a, in somewhat, you know, you can see the speck in someone else's eye so sure. clearly. So I, I'm just thinking about that. And I think it, um, it is dangerous for us as Christians and for, the church and Christian institutions to have a lot of wealth. And I think, you know, I'm, I'm doing this writing project on um, lost, hidden and small, and just really thinking about um, as I read the parables and the gospels, 
I mean, and the entire scripture, um, how God continually shows up in what is small. And we have so we despise small in our culture. Um, and I and I think that's pretty consistent across sort of humanity's obsession with empires. And um, but I and what a safeguard it is to see what is small as sacred and to sanctify what is small and to believe that God works in small because it protects us from the danger of trying to do these big campaigns like, you know, schools for indigenous children and crusades and trying to use force. I mean, that when we despise what is small, we forsake the way of the kingdom. And I think, you know, if the church really was in line with the Matthew 25, you know, about feeding the poor and clothing the naked and welcoming the stranger, we, we wouldn't have a lot of excess capital, right? Because everything that we had would, would funnel through us um, to those in need. And because we, we don't do that, we run into real danger. And when I say we, I'm definitely talking about myself personally. Um, But yeah, I just, Again, I feel like as much as you read that story and you kind of want to laugh and think, oh, that guy, just like you follow the preachers and sneakers Instagram account and go, oh, those guys. And I just always feel the Holy Spirit being like, yeah, that's a, you know, that's a mirror, right? Like, you know that you're, you're not any different spiritually, even if, you know, from my perspective, I say like, well, but, but they're really um, being selfish or wasting money and I, and I'm different when I, you know. I'm I'm not not from the perspective of the majority of people in the world um, and the lack of resources they in, in navigate every day, and I think um, I I don't remember what I was reading, but I remember reading a commentary about a prayer that people prayed in in the past about asking God to protect them from extreme poverty and extreme wealth, right? To just say that to pray for just enough so that extreme poverty wouldn't, um, you know, tempt them to do violence and extreme wealth wouldn't tempt them to do violence. And that we really pray for, you know, for daily bread. Like that's the power of the prayer for daily bread and that we don't want to store up treasure for ourselves so that we have faith in our treasure. We, we, but we want enough for today um, and enough to meet the today needs of our neighbors and then, that vulnerability of not knowing tomorrow is is a healthy vulnerability because it keeps us um, connected to God. So that's what I'm... Well, we've already mentioned it a couple of times uh, in this podcast, but there is the constant temptation of the church to use something other than Christ and Christ crucified to draw people, to win people Mm -hmm. over. And in this situation, for a long time, um, in the church, there's been this thinking, uh, in certain segments of the church, there's been this thinking that if we're going to win young people, especially young people in um, impoverished areas, that what preachers and churches need to do is to show the wealth of the church so that they can see that um, following God means blessing. Mm-hmm. And or, instead of going the way of some illegal route to become wealthy, right? And so they've taken part of the truth, which is that God blesses and mixed it with a lie, that the church has to be wealthy and show its wealth to win people over. And you get the, a distorted situation in which a bishop wears a million dollars worth of jewelry or right. whatever I- sneakers. But we, But as you so rightly said, there are many ways to that road to hell <laughs> in terms of using yeah. something other than the gospel. And there's an, I saw a trailer for this new movie. I don't, I don't think it's coming out of Hollywood. Um, it's probably an independent film, but the, the trailer was, was um, really funny. It's apparently about a church. It's an inside look at a church. And um, this pastor keeps wanting to do more and more exciting things on Sunday mornings to win people over. This pastor is constantly trying to up the wow factor. 
And so, you know, one Sunday he says, well, where's my Superman costume and where's this and where's that? And um, just doing crazy things. And um, the, the big idea, one, uh, like, like the, the, the zenith is we're going to crucify someone lives. Like what? You can't you can't get any better than that. We're gonna do that on a Easter Sunday, and like staff people are like going bananas, saying, "Hey, why don't we just preach the gospel?" Like you hear that line in the trailer several times, "Just preach the gospel." Like I don't know who is making this movie. I don't. I'm not recommending it. I'm not not recommending it. I'm just saying it it illustrates what we're talking about well, in it, terms of how how much we, can be we don't trust. The gospel, the mustard seed yeast that it is to say this is what is transformative and that we were created not for excess. We we were created to know and be known and we were created to be part of loving communities. And I think, you know, the culture respects what is large and provocative. And so we start feeling like, well, you need a certain amount of resources to build a community that's big enough to seem important or legitimate in the eyes of the world instead of recognizing that, you know, the whole, the whole revelation of the incarnation is that Jesus seemed neither legitimate nor important to the world that he was born into. And yet he carried the truth and gave the Holy spirit and revealed on the cross, the triumphant power of love. And there's no, we have nothing else to offer like, you know, Peter and John at the beautiful gate, like silver and gold. I have none, but what I have is this way of being alive in the world. And that's all we have to offer. And we try to offer something else. Um, and it, you know, even when Jesus is working miracles, they're signs, but they are not the ministry. Um, and I, and I think we, um, we just don't, we don't trust the gospel. Um, so anyway, that's what I'm thinking about. What are you preaching about this week? I have no idea. <laughs> it's just Tuesday. Uh, well, by accident, for the second week in a row, I'm I'm going to preach um, the lectionary text. I'm going to preach um, the the rich fool, um, and it's going to be um, a significant Sunday in the life of the Grove. So I'll have a lot of. Um, important things to talk about next week. Let me just clarify. I'm not going anywhere. I'm not leaving the church. <laughs> we are going to have a very significant Sunday in the life of the church this week. And so I will hopefully be ready to yeah, share. We were talking about week. what you were uh, thinking about preaching this Sunday. And um, the thing that really is sticking with me, because um, at first we were talking about the passage of the rich young ruler mm -hmm. And I often avoid that text because I have served mostly, well, almost entirely, um, small, not what I would consider not well-resourced churches, especially when you're comparing, you know, to larger churches. Um, and I don't see myself as rich. And you have helped me see that in a different way in terms of, you know, we're when we say we're not rich, we're, we're looking up instead of down mm -hmm. and we're looking only at ourselves and not at the institutions we are part of, which mm -hmm. have a lot of resources. Right. And I think the reality is, you know, the, the message of Jesus is, you know, he considered, you know, that passage from Philippians, like considering his godliness, not as an advantage, but he gave it up, you know, for the sake of the world. And I think no matter where we are on the wealth spectrum, we have gifts and we have the freedom and the power of leveraging them, maybe not to get what we want for ourselves, but definitely we have the power to leverage them for, for others. And so, you know, I think it's just so easy and the joke, but it's true. And I know this is your, every pastor I know has someone say to them multiple times over the course of their ministry, like, if I win the lottery, I'm really going to be good to the church. And I appreciate just, I mean, really the sincerity of that. I mean, I really do. I, I believe them, but I think it's so interesting that we feel like we have nothing to give unless we are wealthy, whatever wealthy means to us and, and how, 
poorly we as preachers have been doing at preaching the riches of the gospel as opposed to the riches of the world that people will really say like, well, when I have something to offer, I'll offer it. And and how we say to people, no, you have something to offer right now. And I'm not telling you to offer your rent money to the church, right? I'm not talking about, you know, seed the ministry and you'll get wealth in return. I'm not talking about any of that blasphemy, but I am talking about you have something to give and the world teaches you that certain things just are not good enough or big enough to matter. And that's just a lie. Um, so, and now we're back to smallness again, and that's really important to me. Anyway, we are going to stop talking. So thank you so much for listening. Um, if you want to find out more about what God is doing at God's Church, Derrida Presbyterian Church, you can go first to their website, which is D-E-R-I-T-A-Pres.org. Even though we say this every week, people have to keep listening because maybe we'll be funny. Maybe. You don't know. We might have something <laughs> funny to say. Or we might just say, you can also go to their uh, podcast and listen to Yolando's back catalog of uh, sermons, which is on the Podbean website. And you can go to their YouTube channel, which is the Dorita Church YouTube channel, or you can worship with them if you're in the greater Charlotte area on Sundays at 11, 11 o'clock. And if you want to find out more about what God is doing at God's Church, The Grove, you can go to our website, which is thegrovecharlotte.org. You can go to our podcast. Um, Boy, you is, really need to get some rest, I know, don't I'm you? Tired. <laughs> I'm so tired. Um, the Grove Church Podcast, which is on iTunes or, you know, wherever you get your podcasts. And you can go to our YouTube channel. Look for the tree, the green tree. There's lots of groves. I wish everyone could see the look and on your face because you're concentrating. I know. You get- I have to think, stop. It's hard. Or you can worship with us at 10 o'clock on Sunday. I'll be rested. <laughs> Thanks for listening. We'll talk to you next week. <laughs>